so uh, as of about uh, 16 minutes ago, Avengers Endgame has earned more than the uh, total GDP of Europe <laughs> for the last 50 years. Oh it is. my goodness! It's a it's a machine. It, it, it is, and everything's gotten out of the way yeah. um, uh, to, to let it do what it's going to do. Um, I can't imagine what, what what's the other big is there another big what's the other big movie for the summer the other big summer blockbuster um, <laughs> is there uh, one is, is is there anything or is oh. it just simply going to take up all the air oh in the gosh. room for the um, rest of the year I mean Godzilla is coming out uh, end of May mm. uh, there's the new Men in Black which is kind of weird because yeah. it casts Thor and Valkyrie yeah, yeah. does anyone realize that, that the new Men in Black have been borrowed from the last <laughs> Thor movie both of them that's it's so kind of weird that's so strange uh, I'm happy for Tessa Thompson though yeah. what a what a great uh, what she's, a great new career a great run. Uh, but yeah, that's a little weird. That comes out in June. Toy Story in late June, um, and then Spider Man: Far From Home is uh, is the Fourth of July weekend. But yeah. um, and they're apparently saying that the official and I haven't been able to figure out how this all breaks because you know it, we're in, we're we're now at the end of Phase Three of mm. the MCU. Right, it was Phase One, Phase Two, Phase Three. I don't really understand what distinguishes the phases. Feige does, but they're saying that Spider Man. Far From Home is technically the last film of Phase 3, not Endgame. Far From Home takes place after the events of Endgame? Yes. So so not to give away any spoilers, but yes, apparently uh, the that's the thing, is that the, the new Spider-Man film is mm. post-Endgame. Mm-hmm. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how that all shakes out, because... Um, People better see Endgame before they... Everyone's going to have seen Endgame by then. Because the other movies uh, from the MC, uh, from the Marvel Cinematic yeah. Universe, will be filling in holes. Yeah. So Natasha's going to have a movie. Uh, so a lot of hole feeling is going to be going yeah. on. Here. Yeah. So, okay, you know, you know, yeah. But, uh, well, anyway, but yeah, I don't, I don't really see much else coming out there. I mean, there are some kind of semi-Oscar baity things. There's Rocket Man, the Elton John thing, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood from Tarantino. Mm-hmm. But uh, otherwise, I think it's it's pretty much Avengers. Um, Toy Story four. Well, is that going to do anything? You know, Are we toy storied out. I'm I'm toy storied out, and, I, and ironically, the last one was the best one. Yeah, and I don't want it to be. You know what I'm saying? I yeah. I, I love that Toy Story three is my favorite Toy Story movie. Actually, yeah. Um, and I don't want another Toy Story movie. I want this to be that I mean, to be the I'm last just, one. I you know I'm looking at these. I mean, apart honestly, apart from Rocket Man and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's all just tentpole sequels. Fast and Furious film comes out in August. Uh, I don't I don't know if people still want that. Spider Man, I think will get uh, it'll get a little pickup from uh, Avengers. Obviously, uh, Toy Story four, we'll see. That has to be really good. Men in Black, I don't know if there's an no. appetite for another Men in Black movie. No. There certainly wasn't for another Ghostbusters. No. Um, I don't know, man. That's uh, that's gonna be interesting. You got that Tolkien film coming out. Uh, Dark what, Phoenix, which yeah. is another X Men thing. That's June seventh. I think we're all kind of X Men out right now too. Well, there's John Wick three. That's still May. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm on radio. I'm on radio that day yeah, too. But that. but you know the John Wick films have a very specific audience. Yeah. It's not a. They, they've never been like they, they have. They're not big blockbusters. They're not they're big just blockbusters. Successful. They're successful, but they're also successful because they don't cost very much. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't. It's that's interesting. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there's some other stuff that would be huge in any other year. Like if this were 19, I don't know. If this were 1995, a men in a summer with a Men in Black film, a Toy Story film, 
and <laughs> that and, and a Godzilla film that would be huge in 1995. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. in in 2019, I don't know if that's that's really huge. I'm looking because I'm looking here and I see that that film that we, and we it seems like we talked about this film last year. All is true. The uh, the the um, Branagh Shakespeare yeah film. Uh, I guess the wide release is going to be in the next couple of weeks of that. Yeah. Uh, so a Branagh film. They finally pushed that out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and you know that I don't know. Yeah. There you go. That's crazy. Well, anyway. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be. I mean, there's another Child's Play movie coming out at the end of June. Who cares, mm. really? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, new Danny Boyle film, end of June, but those are never blockbusters. No. That's, that's, a, that's kind of, you know, arty Oscary. Yeah, maybe. Oh, Lion King. There you go. Lion, Lion King. Lion yeah. King's going to be huge. Lion King's going to be huge. Uh, that's in July. So I don't, I don't see anything really that, uh, that could be a significant threat until, until Lion King. So that's always kind of the the, the question, right? Um, how long? How many? How much? Because Avatar made so much money because everything got out of its way, mm-hmm. and it was a it was a holiday release end of the year, and January just kind of opened up like the Red Sea in front of it, and it had about four or five straight weeks where it could just it it, it, it there was no competition. Take it was just the clear theaters. sailing. Yeah. Yeah. Took up all the theaters. And it seems like um, Avengers may kind of be in that same position for at least the next three to four weeks. Mm-hmm. I don't see any. It's it's going to have three or four really solid weeks, and it's still going to be doing hundreds of millions of dollars, and you know, right into you know, right into the end of May, early June. Well, uh, all you got is a little bit of counter programming uh, this week. The long shot, comedy, yeah. uh, ugly dolls. You know. Yeah, uh, it's something for the kids. Uh, the The Intruder, uh, the little sort of thriller movie, yeah. but everything is counter programming. Nothing is nothing is in the lane uh, of Endgame at no, all. No, no, it's not. Nope it's It's already made a billion, uh, way more than a billion dollars. We're 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 somewhere close to a billion and a half, two billion, I think, as of mm. right now. I mean, it's I, I'm not even tracking it on a daily basis anymore. I'm just uh, I'll, I'll wait and see where it is in yeah. a few weeks. Well, but you say it's on a path. To it's, three. It's on a path to three for sure, and uh, it's it's going to be the biggest movie of all time. It's uh, you know, but but there's the thing too is that the anticipation factor has been built up over ten years and twenty two movies, mm-hmm. right? And uh, can that ever be replicated again? You know, the Lord of the Rings that was built up over over several years and three movies. Star Wars is built up over forty years. Forty years. Uh, but in a truncated sort of way. Yeah. And the movies don't always sort of like Work. go together, and we even have to pretend like one doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so yeah, it's not the same thing. Not the same thing. Yeah, you, you know, what else has done that? Not, nothing really. Uh, not, not, certainly not over that long, long period of time, that's for sure. That's but it's a sure. risk, too, because if you build up anticipation... Do you count 22... the Bond movies? Do you count the Bond movies? Not really, because they're standalone. In, in it's the, a yeah. that's that's like uh that's like a TV series. You come back every week expecting kind of more of the same. Like when I'm watching Magnum PI, I don't expect every week to be better than the last one, mm. but I expect it to be in the pocket, mm. right? In the Bond film, it's in the pocket, and it's like Doctor Who, right? You mm. you, you mm. switch it up every once in a while, and, yeah, and, and it keeps refreshing. Just keep going, yeah. But but this is uh this is really building up anticipation, building towards something. And I and I and I'm not sure that you with the can... same group of human actors, generally yeah. speaking. I mean, be, not be, always, but mostly. But that's a that's a big risk. You take ten years and twenty two films, and you build up towards something, and that something winds up sucking. Mm. You're dead. Yeah. 
Well, it's a risk. Ask Mr. Lucas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he, he committed suicide twice in that yeah. series. You know? Yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, finally just, you know, I'm going to sell the whole damn company. Jar Jar Binks. And just get the hell out of there. Still his favorite character, uh-huh. Jar Jar Binks. Yeah. My gosh. What's he thinking? Uh-huh. Anyway, all right. Well, let's, uh, let's dive into it. Um, a ton of anime I got to get through here. Anime is really kind of piled up. It was just a big season for anime in the last several months, and it's taken a while to, to burn through a lot of it. So uh, let me try to get through some of this as quickly as possible. For those of you who are big anime fans, put some of this stuff on your radar. From Funimation and Sentai and Made in Japan, all the, all the usual labels. Uh, a lot of really interesting stuff. Uh, Twin Star Exorcists. From Funimation, uh, this is you know uh, this is a volume four of this uh, particular series. Really, really top notch animation and concept design. Really, really great. And uh, you know this, of course, is a is kind of a um, a supernatural battle of good and evil thing. Uh, it, it, if you have not caught, if you haven't been following this from the beginning, all of the 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 stuff that all of the uh, the supernatural occultish underlayment of this, all of the the backstory will make absolutely no sense to you um, unless you want to go onto Wikipedia and just kind of research it as much as you can. But it, this is the kind of thing you really sort of have to follow from the very very beginning. And uh, but it's 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 kind of worth it. It's really really beautifully done. Twin Star Exorcists, that is the fourth volume. Uh, Doreku, the animation. So I don't really know to whom I should recommend this. Um, Tim, what does that artwork tell you? Oh, um, <laughs> bondage meets I don't yeah. even know what. Yeah. yeah. So the the this is anime that clearly lets you know right up front from the image that they put on the on the case. That this is not for children. No, this is a woman in. That's some not co- for most adults. No, it's not. It's a woman in 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 lingerie with uh, a chain and a lock around her neck, a collar and a chain, a ball gag, and a blindfold. Yeah. So that says uh, you better know what you're getting into. And in fact, this is it's not really S and M anime per se, but that's a part of it. And uh, so it it's. It it's a, it it really pushes the envelopes. Um, th- this gets into a I, can, I don't know how I cannot give this away. Um, it's a specific invention that's involved here, uh, the SCM, and it's uh, it is it's a it's a game playing controlling invention, and it's used in nefarious ways. And I guess saw might be kind of a kind of a thing. There is a bit of a, a tech aspect to it, but anyway. It's not for everybody. Doreku, D-O-R-E-I-K-U, the animation. It's, it's, a, mm. it's, it's, a, it's a tough sit. Can uh, call a Fleet Girls Collection, the complete series. Uh, this, of, of all the schoolgirlish things, the fetishistic schoolgirl things, this is the uh, this this one's based on a game, and um, you know it's it. I, I I guess there's a thing to this. This is uh, this is about schoolgirls. Who are like the reincarnated spirits of Japanese warships? Does that even make mm, sense? In no. any... okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's the idea. Uh, this was a game, apparently, and I guess a successful game in Japan. I don't really understand what what thrill people get out of saying <laughs> that girl's a destroyer, that girl's a battleship. Kind of weird, uh... but there it is. That's basically what's going on. Uh, anyway, so um, it has a little bit of a. Fetishy superhero aspect to it. I'm not going to judge. 
Divine Gate, the complete series, episodes 1 through 12. Uh, the This is the Essentials volume. Divine Gate has some, some fun stuff in it. Um, I, I've seen a, a few episodes of this. It gets old a little bit. There's kind of an Avenger-y thing to it. You know, it all, it's like about a Stargate kind of a thing. And uh, it, 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 uh, it, it, it bestows on you kind of a, uh, a chosen power, a chosen mm-hmm. calling. Maybe that's the best way to put it. Uh, so anyway, the uh, the people who are chosen are called adapters, and they're given these kind of X Men like abilities, and then there's like a this this international organization, kind of like a special UN thing, that uh, sort of um, has to try to bring them in. Anyway, there's a there's a whole myth to it and a whole mystique, and uh, it, it's it's interesting, but it does I don't know that they I don't know that there's enough story there to really sustain episode after episode, but it's worth it's worth checking out. Sayuki Complete Collection, uh, one of the coolest, this is f- all 50 episodes from the uh, Sayuki series. This is some of, the, some of the coolest anime I've seen in a long time on the feudal front of the things that deal with, um, uh, not necessarily specifically feudal Japan, but things that have the, the feudal style. And um, this is about uh, kind of a, a renegade group of uh, outlaws who are supposed to save mankind from demon kind? Mm. There you go. That's probably the best way to put it. Anyway, uh, it is. It, it's it's a it's an interesting kind of dark hero collection, and uh, some really really good fighting in it, and it, uh, it is some good animation. But it it sort of brings the feudal into the present day, and it's a little bit gory and bloody. But I still enjoyed it. Uh, also from the uh, the essentials line, Star Miu season one. This is from Funimation. Uh, Skew's a little bit older in terms of all of the uh, kind of schoolgirl stuff and the schoolboy stuff. This is uh, this takes place in a, uh, a kind of like a collegiate academy, and uh, it it's uh, really pretty much just school politics. Not that terribly interesting. Uh, let's see, part one of Katana Maidens. These are just butt kicking young girls. They are they got their swords and they got their attitude. The, and it's really, really fun. This comes with a few little extra things, but uh, otherwise it's very fetishistic, but I, I like it. It's just girls with swords protecting the world. I'm all about it. Yeah. It's cool, right? Girls and swords. Can't get enough. Armored Trooper Votums TV Collection. This is from Made in Japan. This is uh, pretty straightforward mecha stuff. If you're, if you're big on mecha, uh, Votum stands for Vertical One-Man Tank for Offense and Maneuvers. And uh, it's this, you know, it's 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 in the vein with uh, Gundam and Transformers and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it's Votums. I mean, if you like the, if if you if, if you've seen yeah. the design of the Votums, it's cool, but it doesn't really go much beyond that. Legend of the Galactic Heroes, um, also very very well done. This is a uh, interstellar war stuff. I prefer something that I'm going to be talking about here momentarily. But as far as the uh, the Star Wars type stuff, the anime that uh, that sort of emulates intergalactic wars and empires, this is one of the one of the better ones that I've seen in a while. This is twelve uncut episodes of uh, Legend of the Galactic Heroes. This is relatively new, but uh, I think the you know in a in a in a vein where they can't really invent much new that Star Wars and Battlestar Galactic and all these things haven't already done, mm-hmm. they kind of find something that's sort of new in the pocket. Oh, it's not bad. Uh, let's see. Let me go here. Well, this is this is the other one that I was going to recommend instead, which is the reboot of Star Blazers. Star Blazers twenty two oh two. 
And we are, uh, we've now moved on to another volume of this, volume um, part one. I'm going to be honest with it. So it's part one, episodes one through 13, and uh, this includes a, uh, an art book and a space for the next volume. Um, the reboot of Star Blazers, and this is, you know, is, is really welcome because Space Cruiser Yamato, Star Blazers, however you know it, was one of the seminal uh, anime odysseys of my growing up. And it was, you know, it was Star Wars before there was Star Wars. It was just absolutely wonderful. And what they've done is they, they did a live-action uh, Space Cruiser Yamato film a few years ago, which was not great, but it was still kind of promising. And they took that as an impetus and said, you know what, maybe we can't move into, into the live-action world, but maybe we can reboot it in anime. And what a great thing they did. The animation is better. Uh, the voice characterizations are stronger. Everything about it is better. The writing is stronger. But they're not letting go of what made it unique originally. They're keeping keeping the essential element of it. And it's wonderful. Um, uh, new interstellar threats, new new technologies. They, it's, re- it's a really wonderful reboot, and I think it's great. So stick with the new Star Blazers. Also, uh, Code Jazz, Lelouch of the Rebellion. This is a movie trilogy in a steelbook. Uh, the Code Jazz thing is also very uh, mythically mecha. It all takes place in uh, the year 2017 of the Imperial Calendar, which I have no idea how that necessarily corresponds to to our calendar. But uh, you know, it uh, that's that's a that's an interesting world to explore. The the steelbook is strictly for fans. Uh, DVD only, also from Made in Japan, is Monochrome Factor, the complete collection. Uh, Monochrome Factor has a cool kind of uh, gothic, noirish, uh, steampunky signature to it. And uh, this is all about uh, working between the spirit world, the shadow world, and our world. Kind of a ghost hunter concept. Uh, it's, uh, it's pretty well done. A little hard to follow in some regards. Um, but uh, one of the you know, one of the one of the more interesting recent franchises they've created, Gangsta, the complete series. We've talked about a little bit. Uh, this takes its cue mostly from a lot of American genres, a lot of American crime genres, gangster genres, uh, gangster sagas, uh, organized crime sagas, and it's uh, you know it's a it's a mafia battle thing, but it's done anime style. Very stylish, very interesting, pretty solid. Also from Funimation. Uh, Pandora in the Crimson Shell, Ghost Urn. This is this skews very young. This is just big-headed, big-eyed little kids with palatable action. It's kind of like a Ghost in the Shell for kids, if that's even possible. Uh, all kinds of cyborg stuff going on here, but skewing very, very young. Like this cute girl who's, you know, she's a cute girl, but she's also a cyborg. Yeah. Right? And who who needs that in your life? <laughs> uh, anyway, so that's uh, that is uh, Pandora in the Crimson Shell. Probably good for you know nine ten should be old enough for that. Mm. Uh, Kino's Journey complete collection. Kino's Journey has been uh, has a certain following in the anime world. It's uh, it's you know Kino and Hermes uh, on their little. I guess that we could call this like anime Easy Rider. Maybe is uh, is a way of putting it. Uh, the uh, you know you it, except easy with a little bit of a tech yeah. mystical quality to it. Uh, but it's a it's a it's road trip and it's an adventure and the motorcycle is super cool. It's like I don't know, Easy Rider meets Speed Buggy on a on a Japanese anime motorcycle. There you go. It uh, makes no sense whatsoever. 
You got and, a few more of those? Yeah, let me just hit a couple more, and then I'll I'll save the others until the end of the end of the show. So we don't get too don't bore people stiff. Um, here we go. This is this is cool. This is also from the Essential line of uh, of Funimation. Uh, Rampo Kitan, Game of Laplace. Um, so uh, what's going on here? This is if you if you're familiar with Edogawa Rampo, the famous Japanese author. Uh, they made a live action movie about 25 years ago, maybe 20, maybe longer, called Rampo, The Mystery of Rampo, which yeah. I absolutely adored, which is a like a fantasia based on his books in which he is a character. His name was not Edgawa Rampo. That's like the Japanese pronunciation of Edgar Allan Poe. Mm. That's how he uh, assumed the name, but a legendary uh, writer in Japanese literature. And they, they made this really cool anime series called Rampo Kitan, Lap of, uh, Game of Laplace, which is inspired by his works. And it's uh, this really interesting, noirish, fantasy-inspired detective story that uh, takes all kinds of fascinating chances and plays with visual symbolism and, uh, and what is and isn't real. And much like the movie and his, and his books as well. And um, it wraps it all around this um, kind of traditional Japanese school politic where there's a high school detective... And the works of Rampo kind of become part of uh, of his life. Anyway, it's really quite interesting, very very daring, and uh, takes a lot of really interesting chances. Also has commentary on uh, one of the episodes and promos and a bunch of other interesting things. It's a it's a really interesting show worth checking out. Rampo Kitan, Game of Laplace. All right, let's do new movies. Uh, yeah, well, a couple over here. Anyway, uh, this is a very interesting little French film. That uh, that I saw in in, in 2018 uh, that was extremely disturbing and you know, particularly appropriate in this day and age. A permanent green light. It's about a little boy and not a little boy, but a young man in northern France who decides that he's going to blow himself up. Now Ooh. he isn't engaged in any sort of a political act or religious act or anything like that. It's, it's, it's it, it, the movie itself has to do with teenage angst and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but what he's interested in is the way society reacts to these things when they happen in the world, the way people behave. And he's, and he, and he's wondering um, uh, how people are going to behave once they know a person that's going to do it. And, and what the movie, this very uncomfortable movie about, is we, we follow him as he tells and engages and people come to understand that he is, in fact, going to do this thing. Very disturbing, powerful little movie. John uh, Waters, John Waters put it on his top ten lists of films of 2018. Bonus features include an uh, interview uh, with the uh, filmmakers, uh, brothers Dennis and Zach, uh, well, not brothers, actually, Dennis Cooper and Zach Farley, uh, friends who've been making working on these films together. All right. Very powerful movie. Um, uh, what Men Want, Taraji P. Wasn't Henson this and in Tracy theaters Morgan. like 18 seconds ago? 18 seconds. And, and it was funny, so, that, so, so I know people are thinking, oh, is it a remake or some sort of a take on yeah. what women want, the, yeah. the 2000 Mel Gibson yeah. uh, uh, film? And it is. A reference to the same writers and all kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I don't know. This movie just came and went extremely quickly. Now, 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 Tina Gordon, Tina, uh, Tina, Tina Gordon. She has a little movie in theaters called Little that was just out a while yeah. ago. So she's having a little moment. Uh, Tina wrote Drumline way, yeah. way back, eighteen, nineteen years ago. Or something uh, like that. One of my favorite okay. movies. That's her, yeah. Uh, but this movie just sort of came in. Anyway, it's about a, it's about a sports reporter, a woman uh, who's not doing well with all her sort of male competition until she gets the ability to hear what men are thinking. But I'm bummed. And you know, I, anyway, Tracy Morgan's in it. He's funny no matter what he's doing. So I'm not gonna not gonna <laughs> just, yeah, love, love yeah. some Tracy. <laughs> Every time Tracy shows up on Jimmy Fallon, 
<laughs> I can't because they're such good friends to begin with. But yeah. it, it just it always slays me because Jimmy Jimmy loves it. You you can tell that Jimmy can't stop laughing at Tracy. Yeah. You can tell that even when the camera's off, Jimmy just sits around and laughs you, at Tracy. You know that those guys were a lot of fun in the it's writing room so at, much fun. At, at, at SNL. Oh, yeah. Uh, Blaze is the film that Ethan Hawke made about the um, this uh, movie. about Blaze Foley, the sort of itinerant uh, Texas uh, singer songwriter folk, guy, folk singer, folk yeah. singer. Uh, died in 1989. Uh, had a hell of a life that guy, um, um, including polio when he was a little boy. Uh, so one of his legs was shorter than the other leg. Yeah, uh, and he saw a drug his foot when he walked, and they called him Deputy Dog. He was just one. Of, he was he was he was one of the original outlaw guys, Willie Nelson, Merle mm-hmm. Haggard, you know, those yeah. guys who yeah. sang those songs, wrote and sang those songs. Interesting stuff. And there's obviously. a real there's a real bound for glory quality to this movie that I like. And I I'm so sorry that this didn't make it into the awards season yeah. conversation. I thought it would. Ethan Hawke directs this with so much love and passion, and it it's got such good performances in it. Um, uh, and especially what I forget the name of the actor who plays Towns Van Zant, but does a great, great job. I mean, it's uncanny how much he is like Towns. There's another guy from yeah. that era. Those, yeah, those, those, those songwriters. It's yeah. just it's a really you know it has that Bound for Glory feel where these are these are people who are living a rough life and just kind of you know going from from uh, performance to performance and kind of flirting with fame for a yeah. minute or two, but it doesn't fit them right. Not it doesn't fit these, them right. These are the guys who inspire the guys to actually That's get it. the fame and fortune. There you go. Uh, but, um, you know, it, but it's yeah. a very, a very a lovely, lovely movie written and directed, uh, well, written by Ethan and uh, Blaze's widow, Sybil That's Rosen. Right. That's right. Who, uh, who wrote the book that it was based book. on. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. anyway, uh, a special features audio commentary from Ethan and a behind-the-scenes feature. Lovely stuff. Great film. Terrific. Uh, what are you going to do? TV? What are you going to do? Let's, uh, yeah, let me make mention real quickly of something else that's new. Uh, this came out in 2016. Trauma. We don't talk about a lot of trauma films a lot here, because but they do drift in occasionally. Industrial. Well, 40, 40 years. 40 years. 40 years they've been making those terrible movies. 40 years. My goodness. <laughs> Lloyd Kaufman. What an empire he's built. Uh, anyway, Troma is... Play- a lot of people start their careers at Troma. You know, they don't brag about it like the people who started it with Corman, but yeah. it, it happens. And um, this is written and produced by Tamson Howland and Sam Mason Bell and directed by Sam Mason Bell. Those are the two people who really responsible for this. I want to emphasize that this Lloyd Kaufman, you know, got behind them, but it is Tamson Howland and Sam Mason Bell who are responsible for this. This is not a normal trauma film. This is really kind of edgy and uh, very unusual for for trauma. It's not kind of winking at you with, you know, Toxic Avenger and saying, isn't this funny and ridiculous Sergeant Kabuki Man and all the various other nonsense. Um, This gets into the really ugly side of sex work and humiliation and voyeurism and all of that stuff. It's uh, and it's really pretty edgy and uh, kind of self-reflexively shocking in in a certain way. It's about some people who uh, about documentary filmmakers who hire a prostitute uh, to so that to sort of give them an inside look at what it is that that sex workers do, and uh, the experiment of this documentary becomes it, it it runs out of it runs out of control a little bit. I'm not going to com- compare it quite so much to Man Bites Dog, but it does have overtones of that. It doesn't go to the same direction. It doesn't um, go as as far as fast or, or take the risks that that takes. 
but it's kind of in the same general ballpark, and uh, it's, it's, it's worth mentioning them in the same breath, if not comparing them. This in- includes a Lloyd Kaufman introduction, a uh, commentary, and a bunch of featurette stuff, including all kinds of plugs for other, other trauma stuff. But otherwise, an interesting departure from the usual trauma fair, Industrial Animals. Great, great stuff. A uh, little TV? Yeah, let's do the TV. Uh, Moses, uh, the lawgiver. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, this, Burt Lancaster in this series, I remember. I remember uh, it too. Uh, it, it was really a very, it, it, this, is, uh, it, this particular series, uh, let's see exactly when this thing ran. It had I'm, to be uh, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, I see, right about 1990. 1974. Oh, gee whiz. That, that early. And, see, and that's I, where I, my I, memory is. That, man, I, I tell you. Anyway, I just remember this being a very gritty. This was 70s? 1974, yeah. I must not have seen it originally then. I must have seen it on a, on a rerun or something. That's uh, interesting. I think I saw it originally, yeah. Ennio Morricone did that wonderful score yeah. for it. I remember all of that. And interesting thing, Burt Lancaster's late son, Bill... I'm confusing it with the other ten. There's another Ten Commandments thing. From oh, the ten, yeah, from the, the, the yeah. Um, yeah, I'm thinking of something. But I, I, yes, post, okay. the Moses the lawgiver. Yeah, uh, his his son uh, Bill uh, 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 played the young Moses in the series, and I just remember him being so wonderful. I hadn't thought about Bill Lancaster because he was a writer, Bill Lancaster. Yeah, the uh, screenplays and whatnot. I think he wrote. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking of the thing. Moses. I'm thinking of the Moses miniseries from 1995. Who was, who was that? That Who's was the, who played the lead in that. That's what I'm thinking of. That was it was it, it, that Rod, was that was a really good one too. Yeah, that was uh, Ben Kingsley. Ben Kingsley. Ben Thank Kingsley played Moses. That's and it's so what I'm funny about those with. both those because I do not think of either one of those. Yeah, uh, these this yeah. and that one as faith based. No cinema, not at all. So not so all. so now because now we have all this faith based stuff. Yeah. How is it that these films were one hundred percent biblical, uh, yeah. historical biblical films? You know, uh, this one follow obviously all the stories of Moses in the yeah. Bible. Um, how is it that we don't call these faith based, but we do now? Let's, I think uh, so. This is this is where it is. F- so called faith based movies tend to be movies that are made specifically for the purpose of affirming mm. faith concepts, not telling a story, uh, not necessarily recounting a biblical story or whatever, but specifically, even though some of them do that, like that that Ruth, yeah. the movie about the book of Ruth some years ago because of the people who made them. But generally, those are movies about that, that all follow the same formula, which is meet this musician or athlete or business person or somebody who's drinking too much, sleeping around, doing something wrong, hates their lives, meet somebody that says, why don't you come to my Bible study group or come to church or, or my whatever. They go there. They are challenged to do something. They find faith. They find God, and their lives turn around. Mm. That trajectory is common to almost every single solitary one of these films. Even the recent Unplanned, which mm-hmm. is rated R, and it's based on you know that the story of a, a, a Planned Parenthood uh, clinic director who you know had yeah, turned full a, yeah. full anti-abortion. And but that's the same trajectory. She's mm-hmm. running the clinic. Somebody says, "Why don't you come to church? Why don't you you know how do you, you 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 don't you feel guilty about what you're doing?" And eventually she does, and then she quits, and she becomes an activist on the other side. Mm-hmm. It's the same trajectory. Every single one of those films is that trajectory. To me, that is 
faith-based. They all follow that formula, mm -hmm. and, and they all get marketed by the same companies to the same audiences. As, as opposed to simply telling yeah. Bible stories. Correct. Because, you know, I mean, films have been telling Bible stories for forever. For, forever. Yeah. Cecil B. DeMille yeah. filled them with, you know, sex and, and made them commercial. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Very interesting the way you oh, frame these Moses. things. Moses. I've always thought of every single Tyler Perry, you know, Medea film yeah. as a faith-based film. They are for the most every part. Every single one of those films yeah. uh, is about coming to Jesus at the end of the movie. <laughs> uh, uh, no matter what the hell happened, you know, yeah. you ain't gonna come to Jesus, you'll be okay. Anyway, I remember loving this movie, Moses Lawgiver. He was just so wonderful in this. And and Bill, and that's why I was talking about Bill Lancaster, who was a writer. I think he wrote yeah. The Thing, if I'm not mistaken. He plays young Moses in this. He was just really wonderful. Died oh. very young, Bill Lancaster, about 20 years ago. I met him once or twice, is nice. why I found it inter that interesting. George Carlin, 40 years of comedy, hosted by a very young John Stewart. So this is a uh, broadcast from the Wheeler Theater in Aspen, Colorado. Uh, it was the 10th HBO special for George Carlin. Uh, in, in addition to that uh, particular performance at the Wheeler, this is jam-packed with all sorts of clips and snippets of George Carlin over the course of his uh, long career, 40 years of comedy, up to this day, including, and it also includes these wonderful little interviews uh, that John Stewart does with George Carlin. Uh, uh, Carlin was a hero of his. And it's just neat to watch John Stewart uh, as this young comedian well before uh, you know that 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 television show. Uh, you know, talking with talking with um, George Carlin about what it means to be a comedian. Uh, a, a couple of the new pieces that he premiered at that time for this uh, concert included advertising pets and American BS. That's not what he calls it. But those are two of the funniest bits you have ever 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 ever, ever seen. Great stuff. George Carlin, forty years of comedy, hosted by John Stewart. I was just listening to him on the radio the other day. You know, there's a, there's a their comedy channels on Sirius XM, and, and one of them he was going. You forget how brilliant he could be when he was much younger. He was going through. It was it was this wacky news uh, reportage. Oh yeah, right. Where he's doing like seventeen different voices, and we're now going to go to the uh, the hippy dippy weatherman. Hey man, and he's doing all those different voices. That early career stuff he used it's to do. Yeah, just, it's like so, like Phil Henry or something like that. It's amazing. It really is. It's so skillful. Uh, I got some stuff from Acorn TV here. The first one is the complete collection of Wire in the Blood with Robson Green. Uh, really, this is this is a profiling series. This is a uh, one of the, the 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 better British mystery shows because mm -hmm. it really has um, it has some really great episodes to it. But it's uh, for the most part, what you've got is Robson Green, who is an amazing performer, amazing actor. I don't know why he doesn't uh, show up in in more movies or anything, but he's a TV guy there, I guess, and he's comfortable with it. But uh, nonetheless, you know, he is uh, he tracks down serial killers because he profiles them and he thinks like them. And uh, I can't imagine that there are as many horrible people in England as he finds in this show. But nonetheless, it's a really, really great show. Incredibly well-written, superb supporting cast. Emma Handy is fantastic. Uh, Felix Scott is great. I mean, there's some really, really good, it's just a great cast, great script. Really one of the best uh, crime series they've had in the UK in a very long time. Wire in the Blood, complete collection from Acorn TV. Gonna love you some Robson Green. And then uh, a new show... From Acorn TV, this is Finding Joy, uh, written completely created, written and, and conceived by Amy Huberman, uh, who I guess is somebody I should know. But anyway, this is an Irish show uh, that kind of uh, it, it's about a woman who whose life takes a big turn. It's, she's not in a great place, and it takes a turn when she's promoted to replace uh, the vlogger at the network where she works, and suddenly she goes from you know to basically being the subject of 
her that her life is now the thing that she's literally putting on the news and where she goes and what she does and what happens to her and the people she meets. The whole thing about vlogging, and I don't watch any vlogs. I don't really understand the concept of vlogging, but I yeah. get what it is. And this is trying to sort of, in a very intelligent and insightful and often very funny way, get inside that phenomenon. And uh, it stars and is written by Amy Huberman, who created it. And she's great, but uh, you know, not a lot of Irish uh, TV these days. And I, I thought this was perfectly fine and enjoyable, so I enjoyed that. Um, this is the this is season four of Better Call Saul. Um, uh, yeah, people absolutely adore this show. Uh, it's a spinoff of Breaking Bad, of course. Saul being uh, Saul Goodman, the lawyer that uh, Walter White, uh, his unscrupulous lawyer. And uh, you know, it's 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 interesting. I wonder because I've I've actually never seen an episode of Better Call Saul. I only I only know Bob Odenkirk's character Saul from, from Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad, yeah. Um, so uh, the, the way this story lays out, um, before he was Saul Goodman, he was a guy named Jimmy, Jimmy McGill, also a lawyer. And this series, I think, walks us up to the point when he becomes Saul Goodman and opens up that that uh, that uh, storefront right. uh, shop there. Well, that's what happens in season four. In season four. We see Jimmy McGill apparently become Saul Goodman, and I, I suppose we're on the road to meeting Walter White and and in the, the, the other series that we're going to know. Anyway, um, I know that people absolutely adore this series uh, on AMC. Uh, this is an uncensored. These are the uncensored episodes of season four. I wow. suppose that means they cuss or something. I mean, uh -huh. I don't know what that means exactly, but nevertheless, that's what it has as special features. It's uncensored. Uh, one more kind of TV-ish thing, and then I got some foreign stuff, and then we're going to jump into uh, old movies, catalog titles, uh, things of that sort. Uh, Dr. Andrew Weil uh, is the star of the Andrew Weil Collection, the Dr. Andrew Weil Collection, which, you know, Andrew Weil is a guy who goes all the way back to um, uh, kind of the, the, the LSD and hippie yeah. people in the, in the 60s. Timothy Leary folks, yeah. Timothy Leary people. He was part of that whole scene. And then did a fascinating career turn and became like this guru of health. And um, it's he, he's become a guy who's all about changing your diet, changing your lifestyle. And he's written books. And he is quite charismatic with that fluffy white beard and bald head. Uh, he, he gives you he gives good talks. So there's all kinds of stuff on here for people who really are into the whole Andrew Weil thing. Uh, two discs. Five different, uh, or four different episodes. No, five. There are five different episodes here. Uh, they're all kind of sort of in the feature-length place. Optimum Health and Well for Optimum Health and all, you know, general health guide. Um, and then there are some bonus features on here like breathing exercises and all kinds of other diet stuff. Not usually my thing. Uh, took a quick glance at, at some of this, and it's it, it gets a little bit uh, nuggety and granola y for my face. But <laughs> but you know I have I know I live near Topanga Canyon. I know people who are very much into the whole holistic thing, and I uh, I you know I respect it. It's a uh, it's a lifestyle choice, and he is certainly the guru of that. So for those who uh, might find a value in this, that is the Dr. Andrew Weil collection from Kino Lorber. And then a uh, few, three foreign thing, things here I want to make quick mention of uh, from the Blackout Collection, B L A Q, the films of Luc Moulet. Uh, two films The Man of the Badlands by uh, Gerard Courant and uh, The Sieges of the Alcazar. This is from Facets. Facets, of course, goes and digs stuff up out of the. Uh, 
out of the out of the crevices that other people sometimes miss, and there are a lot of films you're only going to ever find from the Facets Library. Uh, for those who don't know, Luc Moulet was one of the uh, original uh, French New Wave figures. Did not become as famous as many of the others internationally, but he was you know he was at Cahiers du Cinéma, and he he was with all of the rest of these. And uh, the he he made some very interesting kind of film films that probably could have been in the same vein with uh, the work of Godard. Certainly, as stylistically and aggressive, uh, just as he took the same chances that Godard took, that Rene took, he took mm. a lot of the same kind of outside the box, form shattering uh, risks. But um, for whatever reason, he just didn't catch on quite mm. like the rest of them. And uh, you know, Agnes Varda, there's another one that recently passed. Oh, yeah. And she did the same thing too. So, in any case, uh, The Sieges of the Alcazar is this really, really fun comedy that uh, is kind of self-reflexive in the sense that it's about a guy who is a Calle de Cinema film critic who has this particular obsession on Michelangelo Antonioni. And he and it winds up becoming sort of a, um, a meditation on relationship when he meets this woman who has certain... They have things in common, but there are other things that they don't have in common. And if you know some of the publications involved, not just Cahiers du Cinema, but Positif and all of these very kind of navel-gazing, pretentious French um, cinephiliac Mm. uh, magazines, this is really quite a fun kind of look at that whole world. It's really, it's it's quite smart. And then uh, The Man of the Badlands is a documentary by Gerard Courant that is about uh, Luc Moulet. And uh, the, the, the way he made his films, the, what the films represented in his life, how he sort of delved into his own experience and, and uh, put that on the screen. It's, uh, and it's got some beautiful photography in it. So, you know, uh, both of these are worth checking out. That's from Facets, uh, the, uh, from the Blackout Collection, the films of Luc Moulet, The Sieges of Alcazar, and the documentary uh, by Gerard Courant, The Man of the Badlands. And then the last two here, we have Fantomas. Three film collection with Jean Marais and Louis de Funès and Mylène de Mongeau. Uh, Fantomas, of course, is a uh, a franchise that goes all the way back into the silent era with Louis Fouillade, who made the original Fantomas in 1913, which was sort of the, one of the first serialized stories. And uh, this is Fantomas reinvented in the 1960s. And uh, Jean Marais was the star of these along with uh, Louis de Funès. And uh, Mylène de Manger. And they, um, there are three of them here. Fantomas versus Scotland Yard. Fantomas Unleashed. And then, of course, from 1964, the one that restarted it all, the original Fantomas. Uh, Tim Lucas, film historian, does a commentary on that original Fantomas from 1964. Uh, the, other, the other two were made in 1965 and 67. And uh, it goes into great detail as to how, the, um, how this franchise changed obviously between The Silent and this one, and uh, I think it's worth exploring whether or not you could reinvent this. Fantomas, the character, is kind of this this diabolical mastermind, master of disguise, and many other things, and um, I think you could probably reinvent Fantomas for now, if not, you know, you could even do it as a comedy like they did with OSS 117. Yeah. Uh, so there are uh, there are beautiful photography for these films. They're all shot in, uh, in widescreen and really beautiful stuff. And um, anyway, that is Fantomas three film collection, three that were made in the 1960s, Fantomas from 1964, and then Fantomas Unleashed and Fantomas versus Scotland Yard. 
And then lastly, on the foreign front is a German film called Hagazusa. Hagazusa, a gothic folk tale. I can't say, this is from Doppelganger releasing. Can't say that I really find this uh, fun to watch. This did a few underground film festivals. It takes place in 15th century Austria. And if you know anything about that part of Europe, nothing good was happening in Austria in the 15th century. Absolutely nothing. It was all occultism and witches and persecution and poverty yeah. and just absolute horror. It was an, uh, an awful, miserable time to live, especially in the, uh, in the Austrian Alps. Uh, so this is, uh, this is all about a, a, a woman, a, a goat herder, who uh, in her remote little village discovers that there is something evil in the hills, something nasty in the woodshed. And uh, it just goes south from there. The movie The Witch is a little bit in the same kind of similar vein, but my goodness. The, and then on top of everything else, they had to go and hire some of these German industrial mm. um, musicians to do the score. So it's, you know, you wind up having this like, like banging, just, clashing. Oh, it's, it's just, yeah. this whole thing makes your skin crawl. It's well <laughs> done. It's well done. But my goodness, you know, Hagazusa. Like you couldn't have just given it a name that was less intimidating. <laughs> Hagazusa. <laughs> Uh, I, I got what te- or technically a couple of old movies here. Yeah. I just hate saying that because I saw both of these movies when they when they came out. In I theaters. know, I know. Uh, a couple of Ridley Scott films: Alien, 40th anniversary. Yeah, 1979, year I graduated from high school. 4K, baby. 4K uh, and Blu-ray. Um, uh, all the same special features that have been on all of the releases of this yeah. <laughs> movie uh, since it's been coming out. As it happens, I happened to listen to the. Um, uh, watched the movie and listened to the audio commentary track with uh, uh, Ridley just the other day yeah. uh, as I'm working on a little script that's in, in, a, in a contained space. And I thought <laughs> yeah. to myself, it's a good movie. You know, c- yeah. c- contained. Ooh, the, well, fantastic this is commentary. The wonderful Yappet Koto. And, uh, it really is a, a fantastic commentary. And yeah, it's really, really a, a very insightful commentary that Ridley was doing. Anyway, it's the 40th anniversary of the Alien uh, films. We were yeah. talking about Bat a minute ago, yeah. all these shows, how they sort of flow to one another. Technically speaking, would this be in the canon? We because we were talking about the Marvel, the MC, with, with so yeah, because that's forty yeah. years if we're yeah. counting this. Yeah, 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 um, sure, sure. Um, so. I, and I, speaking of, I do love the fact that there's an alien reference in uh, oh uh, yeah, in, in Avengers: Infinity War. <laughs> That whole bit was like where I was trying to go. Yeah, but the kids seen more movies. Yeah. Bam! Yeah. <laughs> oh, please don't put your eggs in me. Please don't put your eggs in me. That's just so funny. It's good stuff. Um, uh, this this movie this movie holds up. That's when having just watched yeah. it the other day. Let me say that about it. It holds up. It holds up in every possible way. The screenplay holds up. The performances are fantastic. But but interestingly, the production design. Holds I was just up. gonna say Sid Mead. Just whole, all of it. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and and so uh, this is going to be one of those movies that will never age out. True. What's funny is that the second movie, Aliens. Yeah. Cameron. Yeah. Better movie. <laughs> you think? Isn't that strange? Uh, they're different movies. First of all, they're not even the same genre. Not even, one's an action film. One's you know, one's gothic a, horror. One's gothic horror movie. So not the same genre. But in terms of if you talk about sequels, you know, one and two. Yeah. If I have, if you if you. Gonna make me watch the, that second movie is just so engaging, yeah, uh, and so much more action oriented. But this is a good. This is this is like watching a thriller. It's an it's it's an art film too. Uh, you know, Ridley was in a different place then. It was uh, you know he was he was trying to create a, a body of work, which mm-hmm. I think after Blade Runner he just decided screw it. I'm just gonna take some gigs and make some money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you could build that company, man. Yeah. 
Uh, another film from Ridley is Hannibal, which came out in 2001, mm-hmm. which which was 10 years after The Silence of the Lamps, yeah. 1991. Uh, they had to swap out Jody. Jody didn't want to come back, so they swapped Jody out for Julianne Moore. Uh, Anthony Hopkins returns. This movie did not work nearly as I read both of those books way back gory. in the day. It's too it's gory. Just t- with the thing with the brain at the end of the movie. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, special features uh, audio commentary, again, by Ridley Scott and all kinds of other business um, on this movie, if you happen to be into it. Uh, 131 minutes this movie was. I know. It's too damn long. You know? Uh, it's too much. Uh, Got three here from Severin, uh, three culty things. You know, we talked about there were the, the all the original Emmanuel movies were released uh, yeah. a few weeks ago, the actual proper Emmanuel movies. But as we pointed out, uh, Emmanuel, uh, you can't copyright because all you need to do is just change how many M's or N's or L's yeah. there are or take the E off the end or whatever. You just spell Emmanuel. You can spell Emmanuel at least nine different ways. None of them wrong. None of them are wrong. And if you spell it slightly differently, you're good to go. You can make your own Emmanuel movie. Uh, so you could even start with an I, make it about a guy. Uh, anyway, this is Emmanuel, one M, one N, and two L's. And Françoise. Uh, this, and who, who else would have uh, done uh, Joe D'Amato? That's right. In 1975, Joe D'Amato said, you know what? Uh, I don't need Sylvia Christel and I don't need Laura Gimser. I can, I, can, uh, I, can, I can do this just with the name of it alone. So she made uh, this really nasty, nasty, nasty movie. Uh, it, it's, I don't, you know... It, it, it's a. This is a little. Um, this is. There's just too much S and M and gore and nastiness in this for it to work in the way that the like the Emmanuel yeah, films are softcore. No, they were softcore. They were sweet. Yeah, but Joe D'Amato can't do that. No. So you, at a certain point, you're watching this as an Emmanuel movie. And then you're you're going. This isn't really very no. sexy. And then the cleavers come out. Yeah. And then people are eating people, and you go. Why? Why? Why is there cannibalism in an in a Manuel movie? Yeah. And then you realize, oh, it's Joe D'Amato. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. Uh, two others from uh, Severin. One is uh, called Death Warmed Up, which was made in 1984. This is kind of late for this particular kind of film, but it's uh, yeah, it's okay. It's 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 a it's a New Zealand uh, hack and slash kind of gore movie. Uh, kind of in the same vein that people like uh, Peter Jackson were making before they went legit, or Sam Raimi over here uh, before he went legit. All those horror guys eventually went legit. Um, this is made by um, uh, this guy Blythe, David Blythe, and I don't really know his work. Apparently, he is a he's some kind of a horror maven over there, and just never made it out. Anyway, there's an interview on here with him and uh, one of the actors in here. And uh, some other, you know, there's an audio commentary between the two of them as well. I don't, uh, yeah, it's not a fun film. But, I, you know, for people who like this stuff, Death Warmed Up, there you, if you just want to see a lot of needless gore, you're into it. And the last one here from Severin, Escape from Women's Prison, which I love. This is also from 1984. Any women in prison movies are great. I just want yes. to say that out of the get that right out of the way. I don't care if they're bad. I don't care if they're good. I don't care if they're horrible. Just the concept alone makes the whole genre worth watching because at the very at the least they're going to be hysterical and well worth watching. Um, this this includes the Italian cut known as Le, Le Evas on it, which has Italian audio and English uh, subtitles. 
and uh, that's just as good as well. Uh, I'll take it either way. This was uh, produced by Dick Randall, who did a lot of these kinds of films, and it's not obviously not like the Jonathan Demme women in prison films that he made for uh, Roger Corman yeah. back in the 70s. But you know what? It's, it's still Escape from a Women's Prison. Give me a break. It's women escaping from prison. If you like the genre, you're going to love it. Yeah, can't go wrong. Can't go wrong. I uh, got, a, got a, a couple of old horrors here. Uh, Tarantella. This was this was this movie here. Yeah, about the giant spiders. Everybody's yeah. seen it. Everybody's yeah. seen clips from this movie. The yeah. Giant spider. This is some of the best special effects. That, uh, that year was what? What, what year was that? I think it's 1955 yeah. or so. About yeah, 55. Yeah, 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 55. Some of the Jack best Arnold. Special, uh, you, you've just ever seen in the movie. Very effective. And what's interesting about that movie? So this is the thing. People forget <laughs> what this movie is about. It's the scientist. The scientist wants to feed the world by making plants and uh, animals, cows and whatnot, bigger. Right. Yeah. So he creates this formula, and uh, unfortunately, it works best on insects. And oh, that's it, great. And thus we never, I'm sorry. That I, was a perfectly plausible. <laughs> I have, you know, I've seen this. This has Clint Eastwood, like a really young yep. Clint Eastwood, in it for about 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 16 seconds. Super duper young Clint like, Eastwood. Yeah, that is. He, he's 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 flying a plane. Yeah, he's like he's yeah. He's, he's yeah. They're gonna go blow up the the, the giant spider. That, yeah, I I totally I this, I've seen this for like over 30 years. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Leo, Leo Carroll and John. Agar. Oh, that's great. Yeah, uh, in that neat movie, The Brain. <laughs> Which is kind of a neat movie. I, what I like about this movie is uh, the the beautiful and, 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 and I always thought she should have been a bigger movie star. Cynthia Preston is in it. Um, so basically, this is a movie about this guy who runs his television program. It's kind of like a Scientology sort of television program. Uh-huh. And uh, what's happening is there's this alien brain who is helping him brainwash people and take nice. over the world. A high school student figures it all out. Love it when that happens. And has to stop it, has to stop it. 1988, The Brain, uh, special features. Uh, well, this is the new 2K scan, but uh, but uh, audio commentary from director Ed Hunt, new commentary from uh, Thomas Brashan and a few other people, and, and, and Cynthia Preston, again, who I was spitting by back in the day. The Brain. Fantastic. Got a couple from Warner Archive, the Warner Archive collection. The first one is uh, DVD-R, MOD, Manufacture On Demand. This is an old Wallace Beery, uh, Wallace Beery movie called uh, from MGM, originally now in the Warner Library, called The Mighty McGurk. Uh, also with an incredibly young Dean Stockwell, yeah. Edward Arnold, and uh, A-Line McMahon. Um, this is this is one of those. This kind of goes in the same vein with The Champ, mm. a little bit. You know, it's uh, the the heartwarming old uh, old guy movie and the kid and all of that stuff. Uh, Wallace Beery basically plays an old uh, a former heavyweight champion at this point, and uh, he uh, becomes a um, he he becomes kind of a, 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 a what would you call him? Not a bouncer, but he's like you know he's like the guy for he, the saloon keepers always had somebody oh, who yeah, would yeah. who was the you know kind of keep order right. Kind of the bouncer, the old West uh, equivalent of a bouncer. So anyway, he's a boxer who winds up uh, becoming that guy. And uh, somewhere along the line, this orphaned kid, played by Dean Stockwell, um, kind of becomes the heartwarming, you know, the, the element that softens his big old stupid heart. Anyway, uh, and then, of course, by that time, you know, you uh, you get to a point where... Um, People are going to separate them, and they can't be separated, and you get the whole, you know, melodramatic thing. Um, what is it? What makes life worthwhile? You know, that's the question. What I most loved about this was the director is named John Waters, 
and it ain't that John Waters. No. <laughs> Which is kind of fun. But Wallace Beery in The Mighty McGurk, a little, just a little movie that kind of uh, probably didn't get a whole lot of play in the late 40s, but it really is a nice rediscovery. Now, here's one I want to really talk about. Warner Archive Collection on Blu-ray, originally an Allied Artists release. Frankenstein 1970 with Boris Karloff. But here's what's cool. Uh, and this was made in 1958. Don't think it was made in 1970. Uh, it, it's, uh, there's, a whole, uh, there's, a, there's a whole thing to that. But what there is is Boris Karloff playing Victor Frankenstein now mm-hmm. instead of the monster. That's the, the switcheroo. So mm-hmm. they went and they, they got him to come back to play the, uh, to play the, 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 the doctor. And um, the, what's, it's a funny self-reflexive thing because the whole idea is that he's going to let a TV crew shoot a horror movie in the Frankenstein family castle. And uh, the, the, uh, then obviously it takes a really nasty turn at that point because yeah. Dr. Frankenstein has other plans. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of an interesting twist on the Frankenstein genre done in the style of what was being done in the late 50s. It sort of borrows from the universal 30s sensibilities, transfers it to the late 1950s, and does it by importing Boris Karloff to you know, bring a little bit of what he, uh, what he brought to the original. It's an interesting, it is really an interesting uh, novelty in the, in the genre. Ruby Grooves, Death is a Number is an interesting British horror film only about 50 minutes long, uh, this, this movie, that um, uh, has gone overlooked uh, for quite a long time. I think it works quite well. It has to do uh, with the idea that a family has been suffering through a long curse uh, put upon them by Romany, or gypsies, some people call them, uh, many, many years ago, and that the culmination of that, cult, uh, that curse is, is uh, the last member of the family being killed in this uh, racing accident. Right, uh, and basically, what you really have is just this guy sitting in a chair relating the story, telling the story to a to a friend of his, uh, with some cuts, with some cutaways and flashbacks. This whole movie is almost completely put together in post production. The only like original, original, original stuff is really the interview, not the interview, uh, but the uh, the scenes with this guy sitting in this room in this uh, sort of mansion telling these stories. The rest of it. Is, is culled together from all sorts of footage from all sorts of other places to tell this to to relate the narrative that this guy is telling, including some of the race car driving footage. So, so it's this movie that's almost built completely from post production. Kind of creepy, actually. <laughs> this movie, Death is a Number, uh, from Juno. I wish uh, that they would have put uh, some uh, special features on this, sort of relating just uh, the nature of these things. But anyway, written by Charles Shaw. Neat movie. Got uh, got four from Twilight Time here. This is one of the strongest months of Twilight Time releases we've had in a long time. i got to be honest. These are all four really, really superb, and I, I recommend all of them. Uh, top notch. Janine Basinger, film historian, does a f- superb commentary on Three Coins in the Fountain, the Jean Negulescu film from 1954, which is right in the pocket of that uh, the, 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 the great 1950s melodramas. Uh, you know, there were a lot of films being made right around that time. The Douglas Sirk films, they all kind of had the same uh, sensibilities. And Three Coins of the Fountain is, uh, it was 20th Century Fox made a lot of those at the time. And this is from their library, a beautiful cinemascope backdrop. Uh, you know, the three, basically three women in a moment when, you know, women were beginning to finally find their own, uh, you know, the early, early uh, the seeds of feminism are sort of being planted at that time. Household appliances in the wake of World War II, you know, you can suddenly, you have, you have washing machines and vacuum cleaners, and uh, women are feeling empowered by the fact that they can they can go out and do things. 
And this all takes place in Rome. And Rome in the 1950s is as beautiful as you've ever seen it. It's now rebuilt after World War II and no longer has the vestiges of fascism. And you can, you can you know, make it look like a dream come true. And that's where you get into La Dolce Vita and all this kind of stuff. And that's exactly what this is. The uh, brilliant Milton Krasner, one of the best cinematographers in Cinemascope uh, color ever, um, uh, just does a fantastic job here, and of course, everybody who, if you, even if you don't know the movie, you know the song, the uh, the Frank Sinatra song, uh, which uh, won an Oscar. So it's uh, Three Coins in the Fountain with a wonderful audio commentary, beautiful cinematography, really, and a superb isolated music track that uh, gets us off really well in this month's Twilight Time releases. And then we get to Stagecoach. No, not the original John Ford film from 1939. This is 1966 Stagecoach, which is uh, quite good. It's a remake of the 1939, but it's done in that uh, you know super cool 1966 full color style. So it's widescreen and it's a different cast. And Margaret, Michael Connors, Bing Crosby, Van Heflin, Slim Pickens, Keenan Wynn, Stephanie Powers, Red Buttons. That is a huge, awesome all-star cast. And is it as good as the original John Ford film? Probably not in, in just basic filmmaking terms or in thematic terms, but it's splashier and it's sort of more enjoyable in, in just a general kind of movie uh, m- movie spectacle way is maybe the best way to put it. Um, it's directed by Gordon Douglas, who uh, did a lot of kind of workmanlike uh, work at the time. And... Uh, uh, it's the it's the all color remake of Stagecoach, and it's uh, it's really quite a lot of fun, especially if you've seen the original. And my favorite character in this is Red Buttons. I think it's one of the best things Red Buttons ever did, but it just didn't uh, didn't get a lot of attention. Also, Melvin and Howard, with uh, Paul Lamont, and Jason Robards, and Mary Steenburgen. Wow. Um, I I can't believe this is as old as it is. This was in 1980. This was yeah. that amazing year of. The Elephant Man and Raging oh, yeah. Bull yeah. and Ordinary People and, you know, All I mean, stuff, yeah. oh, what a great year that was. Jonathan Demme really, really uh, carved it up and kind of put himself on the map with Melvin and Howard, which is, of course, um, the, Bo Go- the amazing Bo Goldman screenplay about the uh, extraordinarily weird story of a guy played by Paul Lamott who picks up this old dude and gives him a ride, uh, played by Jason Robards, and then years later finds out that he'd picked up Howard Hughes, and Howard Hughes had left him a uh, fortune in his will. And all of the, the details of this, that ext- I mean, I remember when all that stuff transpired. And what, a, what an amazing story, what a great screenplay, great cast, fantastic direction from Jonathan Demme. Really one of the classics of, the, uh, of that period of the, of the 70s and 80s. Um, just a wonderful movie, Melvin and Howard from Twilight Time on Blu-ray. Wonderful get for them. And then I think the one that is the shining, the crown jewel of this month's Twilight Time titles is The Snake Pit. Uh, what a fabulous get. One of the best films that 20th Century Fox ever made. Olivia de Havilland uh, at her level best. I mean, absolutely her very, very best as a woman in, a, in an asylum. And uh, this is adapted from the the book, The Snake Pit, which was originally published in uh, uh, just some years prior to this. The movie was made in 1948. And uh, Mary Jane Ward wrote the book, and the movie is directed by Anatole Litvak. 
and uh, really maybe the best depiction of what it's like to be trapped in an institution ever. And, uh, you know, this woman just has, she has a breakdown, she goes to this institution, and uh, it turns out to be an absolute hell, hellhole. It's just horrific, and um, it, it, it's, it, it's still very timely. It's done in the style of a noir, but my goodness, what a powerful, powerful, beautiful film. One of the best films of the late 40s, one of the best films of 20th Century Fox's filmography ever. Fantastic. Over there. A couple over here. Penny Points to Heaven from 1951. This is a funny movie uh, about these guys who went at the tracks and decided to go to the seaside to, uh, uh, to a place where they usually go to hang out uh, as, yeah. po- as poor guys, but this time they're, they're rich. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and there are all these women and investment bankers and all kinds of people basically trying to get their money off. Yeah. Them. Interesting thing about this film, Peter Sellers, the great Peter Sellers' first film. Wow. Debut film. This is Peter Sellers' debut film, 1951. This also includes a film called Let's Go Crazy, which also stars Peter Sellers. Yep. It was his second film. So if, if you want to see Peter uh, Sellers' first and second films, uh, check this out, directed by uh, uh, Tony Young. I, I, was, I was looking – it's funny. I know this film, Torment, but I know this film as a film called Paper Gallows Oh, from 1950. That's the way I've always seen it, Bill, because I, yeah, I was looking forward to looking for it. Was, yeah. th- I know this film as a film called Paper Gallows. It's a very good film, uh, British, uh, a, a British thriller about these two brothers who are mystery murder writers. Mm-hmm. They're both a little bit wacky. One of them uh, a bit more so than, than the other. They have a secretary that they're both in love with. The secretary falls in love with the less insane brother. <laughs> the uh, the less insane. Yeah. The, the more insane brother doesn't take well to this, so he commits a murder. Now, he really commits this murder just because he wants to see what it feels like so he can write better yeah. about it. But he decides to pin the murder on the secretary because she's uh, in love uh, with uh, the uh, other uh, brother. I mean, isn't that sure. just a, you know, yeah. a tight, uh, beautiful black <laughs> and white noir? Look at that photography. Oh, that's great. That's just gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. Directed by the late, great John Gillerman. Oh. Uh, one, of the, one of the classic uh, guys from back in the day. You got a couple over there? Yeah, I got a couple from Arrow. <laughs> Arrow sent us some good ones this month. Uh, one foreign, one not foreign. The Grand Duel with Lee Van Cleef. One of the classic spaghetti westerns of the era. This was uh, originally made in 1972, so it's right there, right in the pocket with all the uh, all the uh, Eastwood stuff and the Sergio Leone stuff. Um, basically, this is a, a revenge tale, as so many of them are. But uh, Lee Van Cleef and, uh, and director Giancarlo Santi, who had previously been an assistant to Sergio Leone on The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly and uh, some of his other films, um, they give it kind of an extra layer. You know, Lee Van Cleef isn't just a bad dude. He isn't just that callous, coarse guy. There's, a, there's something under the surface that's really interesting and keeps you going through much of this. Um, also, the nice thing is this doesn't have a Sergio Leone score. Ah. Now, you might think, well, but that's no, is that a good thing? Well, yeah, because so many of these movies do that it's nice to hear a slightly different score for a change, sensibilities of a different composer. Uh, um, Morricone. Uh, uh, Morricone. Yeah, Morricone did not do this. No, you said Sergio Leone, but it's oh, not sorry. Morricone. So, oh, no, sorry, yes. Sergio, no. Sergio I fumbled. Of, yeah, yeah. Yes, Morricone, so, so yeah. correct. Morricone yeah. did not do the score. And uh, the score here was Luis Bakalov, who, of course, had done, you know, done Django. Lots of those, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he had done other ones. So, you know, you, you're, it's somebody who has, it's, it, who has done those before, and you, you have a slightly different feel. So, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a really, really sharp film. Wonderful performance, beautifully transferred from Arrow Video. And then uh, the other Arrow box set here is, this is tremendous. Uh, this is uh, Krustalyov, My Car, a film by Alexei German. Now, Alexei German 
This is a box set that includes the film and then a, uh, a souvenir booklet. Um, Alexei German is one of the great Russian directors of recent years, has not really gotten all of the attention that he deserves. This is from 1998. The film was made in 1998, screened at the Cannes Film Festival in 98. Um, but German, for whatever reason, has not caught on tremendously outside of Europe and, and Russia. I'm not quite sure why, because his films are devastatingly powerful, but they're also really, really dark. And uh, for whatever reason, um, they, they just have a really hard time getting theatrically released in the United States. People are afraid to take their chances with them. Uh, even when they're a little bit funny and, and satirical and ironic, then they're, they're, they're kind of still considered dangerous and unmarketable for some dumb reason. Word had it that um, Martin Scorsese really wanted to give this the Palme d'Or that year and mm. was not able to work the politics of the jury to, to do that. I don't know how that's possible, but in any case, this is a wonderful restoration of this film, which all takes place in 1953, and um, Stalin is still in charge of Russia and, and the Soviet Union, and uh, is targeted by a, uh, a plot of, uh, uh, that, that, that of doctors, and this, this, this is an interesting, it deals with anti-Semitism and a lot of other interesting things. And the, specifically the politics of Russia at the time, and it really is—it's it, dark and absurdist. And when you laugh, you find yourself feeling guilty that you're laughing because you're laughing at some pretty nightmarish stuff. Um, great commentary on here by uh, Daniel Bird, who is a film researcher and programmer, and then a video essay called um, uh, "Between Realism and Nightmare," which is all about this film and Alexei German's other films. And um, a whole bunch of other really interesting things. It's worth checking out. If you don't know the films of German, you really should check out uh, Krustalyov, My Car. That's Krustalyov, comma, My Car. K-H, mm. if you're going to do an online search for this thing. Uh, a couple more? Yeah. Uh, Ferrum Nelly. This is about a 1994 film. Yeah, this came out when we were at yeah. Entertainment Today. At Entertainment Today, yeah. about a uh, young, uh, castrated uh, man. Uh, Which was a thing then. A thing at the time. Yeah. They would maintain those voices. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he was famous. Oscar, Oscar nominated. Oscar nominated. It was a big... And uh, you know, now he was managed by his brother. It, it, bonus features include a making of uh, a featurette. This was a very, very good film. Very good As film. I recall. Yeah. Uh, from back in the day. Uh, uh, so check it out. Uh, not much on this. I wish there were more other than those bonus features. The part of, of, part of film movement classics line on yeah. Blu-ray. Yeah. 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 Aaron and uh, we'll go ahead, do that one, and then I'll wrap uh, this out the, the The Blake Edwards Pink Panther cartoon collection, Love volume em. 5, 1976 to 1978. I have never been able to make the connection between the cartoons, yeah. Pink Panthers, and the uh, Spectre Clouseau, Peter Sells, also Blake Edwards. Yeah. Pink what uh, other than the, the, the Pink Panther shows up, and he's a, you know, I know, he's a, he's a mystery guy. He's, yeah. <laughs> but, but really, these things have never gone together. No, I know. They don't, they, it's not like Star Trek, the TV series, and the animated series. Yeah. Where's the <laughs> it's like in the, in the one, there's Inspector Clouseau and a, and a diamond known as the Pink Panther. Mm -hmm. And then we have cartoons with a literal Pink Panther. An actual Pink Panther. <laughs> and, he's, and he's not even a thief. So, anyway. <laughs> Um, we're going to wrap out with Criterion. Four absolutely sensational Criterion releases that, that it goes without saying. One of which is life-changing to me. Life-changing. But I'm going to start with the one that's not life-changing, which is William Wyler's The Heiress, 
with Olivia de Havilland, another great Olivia de Havilland uh, performance. That's mm. two uh, for us this week. Um, the heiress is just, uh, you know, 1948, the year after she made The Snake Pit. And uh, it's a it's a sensational film. It's one of the great studio films of its day. And I saw this uh, projected some years ago. And it's just an absolute wonderful movie. Uh, there's nothing wrong you can say about it. It's it's just a beautiful movie. Montgomery uh, Cliff. It's, it's just so, so fantastically good. Amazing. Tons of extras on here, uh, including a 19, uh, their excerpts from a 1973 tribute to William Wyler on the Merv Griffin show. That is really quite, quite wonderful. Uh, and then there's an interview with actor Ralph Richardson that was done in 1981 for the documentary directed by William Wyler. Those are particularly good. Uh, and even a nice little featurette here all about Edith Head and her costumes. It's just uh, sensational. It's, you, know, you just can't go wrong with that. Um, My Brilliant Career is one of the best films by Gillian Armstrong, a, uh, one of the pioneering female directors of the 70s mm-hmm. and then on into the 80s. Uh, has made a lot of films that I just absolutely adore. Uh, you know, really a, a superb filmmaker. I don't know why she isn't making more films right now. She should be. We need her right now. But this was kind of the career-making performance by Judy Davis as well, playing uh, Sybilla Melvin in this very interesting Australian coming-of-age story um, that that uh, also really kind of took Sam Neill to a whole new yeah. uh, no, whole new level as well. And, uh, you know, it, it's very much about the outback and hard life in the outback. And, uh, and, and I think it's kind of a film that foreshadows in many respects the piano. Yeah. Because it's a similar plot on a certain level, and, uh, <laughs> which Sam Neill was also in, kind of playing a, a similar part. But uh, regardless, this is just a beautifully photographed, wonderful film from 1979. A lot of great extras in here, including an interview from 1980 with Judy Davis and an audio commentary originally recorded in 2009 with Gillian Armstrong and a new interview with Gillian Armstrong to bring it all up to date. Um, moving close to the one that changes my life is A Face in the Crowd by uh. Elia Kazan, written by Bud Schulberg. Mm. Uh, r- this film has been cited from 1957, has been cited as being prophetic given current political mm. circumstances. Yeah. I don't care where you fall on the political spectrum. It is prophetic. Andy Griffith uh, is a character here who could be not just a facsimile of Donald Trump, but of half a dozen other people who are yeah. now part of the political process. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. could even he could even be he could even be Bernie. Yeah, lo- 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 lonesome roads. Yeah, that's his name, right? Lonesome. Yeah. Uh, yep. Sort of this country guy that has this way of talking. And what does he do? He he speaks a certain kind of truth. Yeah. That people cotton to. Yeah. Uh, while he at the same a, time being an itinerant liar. He is an outside the box, charismatic figure, mm-hmm. almost a religious figure. Mm-hmm. And it, what this says is less about political figures than the political process and the and the electorate, really. Um, a powerful film. Schulberg just killed it with this. Ilya Kazan directs the hell out of it. It is just magnificent. It may be uh, Andy Griffith's best performance ever. Yeah. Patricia Neal also just superb. Anthony Franciosa, very, very good. Um, lots of extras here. Interviews, featurettes, excerpts from, uh, from other things. Really, really uh, just fantastic. Here now, we're going out on the film that changes my life. Well, the edition, the Criterion edition that changes my life. Mm. For 20 years, Tim, I have been sick and tired of being unable to get good Jackie Chan Mm -hmm. Blu-ray transfers here in the United States. I'm Mm -hmm. tired of it. I got all this stuff originally on DVD because the DVD in Hong Kong. I bought stuff in Hong Kong and then brought it back here because it was all crap here. Mm -hmm. And then the Blu-rays start coming out and they're just they're just no good. 
And I'm especially upset about Police Story 1 and 2. Police Story 1 and 2, I have a box set from Fortune Star that I got out of Hong Kong, and it's nice and it's wonderful, but it's a, it's a DVD set. I mm-hmm. need Jackie Chan's Police Story 1 and 2 on Blu-ray. Blu-ray. Criterion has given them to me. Finally. Wow. And, there and, is, and whom, who better? Who better? Criterion understands that uh, it's time for Jackie Chan to get the Criterion treatment. And boy, is it ever. I think there's a lot more coming with this. Um, Police Story is really the film that put Jackie on the map. He was a star before that. Obviously, there was, you know, uh, the big brawl where they tried to make him the new Bruce Lee. That was an American film directed by Robert Klaus, who had done uh, Enter the Dragon. And uh, then he went back, made some things, Young Master, a few other things in Hong Kong. But the one that put him on the map was Police Story. Mm. It was the first official Jackie Chan film. He directed it. He had done a couple of films previously. But it was his style, kung fu comedy and all that gritty stuff. And the stunts where he shows you the outtakes at the end over the credits. Mm -hmm. And it opened the New York Film Festival. And that was an international celebration. And next thing you know, Jackie is, is out of film jail as mm-hmm. far as American audiences are concerned and he's a phenomenon again and Police Story 2 equally good uh, Police Story 1 has that whole thing at the mall at the end where he slides down with all the lights and gets you know fragments of glass in his hands as he's sliding down this pole several stories of a mall it's an amazing stunt has a stunt in it where you know he stops a bus and the two guys go flying out the window of the double decker bus and they land on the pavement because the bus driver didn't stop on cue and yeah. they, they hit the pavement. I mean, this stuff is rough. Police Story Two has a fight, a multi-person fight in a playground that is a clinic in how you shoot and edit an action scene. Watch it over, watch it over, watch it over, watch it in slow motion. Look where they cut. Look how it's staged. It is a masterpiece. It is yeah. an absolute masterpiece. So, uh, Police Story 2 is that, like, 88. It's like 30 years ago. What, what, yeah. what year was that one? Police, Police Story is 1985. Police Story 2 is 1988. Yeah. And, you know, this is the, the beginning of the Hong Kong New Wave as well. Just superb. No dubbing, no recutting, no American Harvey Weinstein's scissor-handed changes <laughs> of this stuff. Original Cantonese language, beautifully transferred, spectacular, and with all the great extras, including interviews with, uh, you get Maggie Chung in the interviews here. Maggie Chung was just starting her career at this time. She plays May in these movies. You know, she's basically there to run around and go, ah, and scream and cry. (laughs) She's not yet that great actress that we all know that she's going to become, but it's still, it's fine. It's great. Uh, so anyway, I can't even get into all the extras. It's just so sensational. I my first because you were earlier to this. The first time I ever saw Jackie Chan was in Cannonball Run. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, when they were Run. trying, when he yeah. was playing Japanese. When he was playing the, Japanese, Cannonball yeah. Run two, as a matter of fact, wasn't even the first Cannonball Run. Yeah. Uh, but he had been a movie star or noted yeah. for twenty years before that. True. Maybe. Yeah. True. Wow. Yeah. And so anyway, Police Story one and two on Criterion is something to so completely, totally celebrate. And uh, boy, am I going to watch this all week long? So we are. Uh, we're probably going to have a bye week next week. Uh, I'm. I am not only on film week, but we have uh, family in town. So I don't see how I'm going to have any Man. chance to do anything yeah. for the podcast. Might be a chance, but uh, otherwise we will uh, we will be back in two weeks, and uh, we hope you guys have a fantastic time. That's kind of our spring break. Yeah, that'll be sort of our spring break. All of that. Yeah.